Voice of Islam Radio. Azubillah min ash-shaitan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Ever Merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 18th of July, 2022. The time is 7:03 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zayal live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam with another. Um, great program um, of two segments um, as is the norm so the first uh, segment is about primary school pupils having pets in class to help regulate moods so that's what we shall be talking about um, from 7:30 a.m. onwards um, until about 8:15 and um, uh, and after that we shall uh, talk we shall go into our second segment which is Uh, about British, British Muslims facing travel chaos um, during the Hajj season that um, has just concluded. Um, so those are the two topics of the day. Please do stay tuned uh, to, uh, and participate in those discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Right. So, um, as is um, uh, the norm here um, on the Monday show, we start the show by talking about um, the headlines that are appearing in the newspapers uh, today. So, the uh, this week's extreme heat dominates actually today's front pages. The Mirror carries the headline: "Blowtorch Britain" alongside pictures of people enjoying the weather on the beach in Brighton on Sunday. However, the paper reports that people. are being warned to stay indoors on Monday and Tuesday amid death fears and travel chaos. The metro has dubbed today meltdown Monday and reports that temperatures are set to top 40 degrees Celsius. Hotter than the Sahara is the sun's heat wave headline with the paper reporting the temperatures in Britain are set to top those in India, Pakistan, Algeria and Ethiopia. The Guardian says that passengers have been urged not to travel by train today but that the deputy prime minister has said schools shouldn't close due to heat. The Telegraph's uh, lead says there is a 60% chance of temperatures reaching 40 degrees Celsius today. People are being urged to get their 40 degrees centigrade winks and take siestas during the heat wave reports the Star. The Express I Times 
and mail all lead stories about Tory leadership candidates, with the Express splashing on a story about a showdown between the five politicians during Sunday's leadership TV debate. Similarly, the Times' lead story describes the TV clash between the conservative leadership hopefuls, headlining on Rishi Sunak's comments about Liz Truss' proposed tax cuts. The eyes. Uh, the eye splash looks at the rivalry between two of the remaining candidates to be the next Prime Minister Liz Trust and Penny Mordaunt. It reports that Foreign Secretary denies being behind attacks on Mrs. Mordaunt's stance on gender and her ministerial record. The Mail's front page features a story about Penny Mordaunt meeting the leader of the Muslim Council of Britain last year after the government decided to boycott engaging with the group in 2009. And finally, the FT leads with a story about how the Bank of England is resisting government plans to deregulate London's financial sector. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers this morning. We will go into some more detail on some of these headlines um, until about 7.30am when we return after this short break. Voice of Islam Radio. Walillahi al-asma'ul husna fad'u'hu biha Al-Quddus is the Holy One, one who is free from all flaws, a blessed being in whom all blessings are amassed. Sanctification of such a being is to declare him pure and flawless. Al-Quddus is the composite of all purity, not merely free from flaws, but also comprising of all excellences which are known and unknown to human perception. Allah is Quddus and His nearness cannot be availed unless one is pure. There are pure people who extol Allah's holiness much more than the angels do and they also spread it in the world. Among them, of course, the most excellent 
is the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the human adaptation and indeed beneficence of Quddus was at its most and best in the being of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He admonished his followers to also seek this beneficence and through its blessings remove any bias they may harbor. It is said that when the divine commandment for the forbiddance of alcohol was made public, pots full of alcohol were immediately broken and liquor flowed through the streets of Medina. This revolutionary change was brought about through the Prophet's power of holiness. Famished, stricken with hunger and poverty, it was indeed the Prophet's power of holiness that brought about the blessings in the lives of the companions. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, depicts the transformation that the quality of the Prophet's holiness brought about in Arabia. This Prophet was created from the light of Allah, who spread his fragrance to take Allah's beneficence to others who removed what was false and manifested most luminously in his truth. He guided people who were but dead of soul, made them civilized and took them to the lofty stages of spiritual discernment. Their drunken nights were transformed into nights of worship of God and their drunken mornings were transformed into the morning prayer, tasbih and istighfar, seeking forgiveness of Allah. In the current age, we have witnessed the manifestation of the holiness of the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Today, we stand witness to the true reflection of the Quddus God on earth in the divine system of khilafat e Fortunate are those who recognize it and benefit from its spiritual power. A new station, The Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with The Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show with your host Dania Zain Imam um, Shahzeb. Uh, we are we are talking about um, the um, headlines or the news items that uh, are appearing in the news uh, this morning. Uh, but just before we go uh, back into those, a reminder of the two topics that uh, we shall be talking about today. So the first segment, which will start in about uh, fifteen minutes' time, is about primary school pupils um, being allowed to have pets in class to regulate their moods. And then the second topic is about Muslims um, in Britain face travel chaos or faced travel travel chaos um, during the hut season that has uh, just concluded. So those are the two topics that we shall uh, be discussing today. Uh, you can join us in these discussions by calling us at 0208-687-7878. Right. Um, 
we have been talking about the uh, the heat wave that um, uh, that uh, we are facing in the in the UK, but the heat wave actually um, uh, is all over uh, Europe. So the, uh, so the Guardian talks about France bracing for record temperatures temperatures as well as wildfires range uh, rage across Europe. So France. Uh, was bracing on Monday for the peak of their heat wave, gripping um, their country with crushing temperatures expected from the Mediterranean, um, as wildfires also continue to rage across uh, Europe. Um, forecasters have put 15 departments in France on the highest state of alert for extreme temperatures, including Grand in the southwest, while wildfires have already wrought havoc. It comes as firefighters battled to contain blaze across southwest Europe on Sunday as a heat wave showed no signs of abating and Britain was poised to set new temperature records this coming week as well as we've been talking about. Uh, This is the second heat wave to engulf parts of Europe in weeks. Scientists blame climate change and predict more frequent and intense episodes of extreme weather such as heat waves and drought. In France, um, in the in the land, uh, forest in southwest uh, Aquitaine region, temperatures would be above 42 degrees centigrade today, according to uh, a forecast. And Brittany, which until recently has escaped the worst of the heat, could register temperatures as high as 40 degrees, according to experts. By late Sunday, the fires in Grand, which have been raging since Tuesday, had already destroyed 13,000 acres driven by high winds and forcing the evacuation of 16,000 holidaymakers, fire services officials have confirmed. The blaze in the southwestern part of France uh, had arrived uh, at the beach and was moving south, the local um, uh, the local officials have said, and videos shot by people at the scene showed that massive fire consuming uh, many other beaches um, uh, as well. France's Interior Ministry announced it was sending three more firefighting aircraft to reinforce the six already operating in the region, as well as 200 more firefighters and more equipment. But the crews firefighting um, the blaze will have to contend with soaring temperatures on Monday. It is one of the regions on red alert heatwave warning. In certain zones in the southwest, it will be an apocalypse of heat. This according to... Uh, one of the officials uh, who told AFP. Temperatures across France are expected to be over uh, an average of 30 degrees, but between 38 and 40 degrees in the western half of the country. Officials in several regions, meanwhile, have also issued pollution alerts because of high concentrations of ozone. Um, so, Imam Shahzeb, uh, yeah, pretty... Uh, pretty hot uh, mm. climate here as well as um, in the rest of the continent no you're right and um, you know for us it's not that extreme yet um, by the sheer grace of Allah and um, we are enjoying it to some extent yeah like, we don't have wildfires and we don't have those problems yet yeah. alhamdulillah so I think in yeah. um, I can't remember where perhaps Wales somewhere they were tackling some blazes um, but you know it's uh, thankfully the sun is out and um I vividly remember last year there being hardly any sunshine. So, you know, taking the vitamin D, making sure that, you know, we fully mm. benefit from this sunshine and um, remember it while it's still here. Otherwise, the rest of the year we all know and are very well acquainted with the the rain and the gloom. Mm. So, That's right. 
for us, by the sheer grace of God, it's you know not too extreme, and we'll certainly enjoy it. Now, in other news, um, in uh, Ukraine, there's been development, and Zelensky, the BBC reports, has fired his security chief and top prosecutor. He said more than 60 former employees were now working against Ukraine in Russian-occupied areas. A total of 651 collaboration and treason cases had been opened against law enforcement officials, he added. The sacked officials, uh, Ivan Bakanov and uh, Irian Vodenchkov, have not commented. In his video addressed uh, on the this Sunday, Mr. Zelensky said such an array of crimes against the foundations of the national security of the state pose very serious questions to the relevant heads, and each of these questions will receive a proper answer, the Ukrainian president added. In the sacking of the SBU, that's the uh, security uh, agency, a chief, Ivan Bakov, a childhood friend of Mr. Zelensky, follows a high-profile arrest of a former SBU regional head in Crimea, annexed by Russia in 2014. So it's um, very alarming, actually, to see how his top officials will actually um, allegedly uh, be sacked over treason. Right. And another very interesting development is in Ghana, which has confirmed the first case of a deadly uh, Marburg virus. Ghana has confirmed its first two cases of the deadly disease, a highly infectious disease in the same family as the virus that causes Ebola. And it says both patients died recently in hospital in the southern Ashanti region. Their samples came back positive earlier this month and now have been verified by a laboratory in Senegal. And health officials in the West African nation say 98 people are now under quarantine as suspected contact cases. No treatment yet exists for Marburg, but doctors saying drinking plenty of water and treating specific symptoms improves a patient's chances of survival. So, all in all, um, you know, although the weather is very much so enjoyable here in the UK, where they may be seeing the hottest day um, on record, rather, has been 41 degrees. I'm not sure where that is, but, um, you know, there are still very much so issues out there in the world, and uh, while you know parts of the world are very unfortunately suffering. Absolutely, and on that note, uh, let's take a quick break, um, and when we come back, uh, we'll continue our discussion on the news um, uh, items um, are being discussed today in in the various newspapers. Uh, a reminder of the two stories that uh, we shall be covering today. So the first topic is about. Um, uh, aiding primary school pe- pupils uh, with pets in class to regulate their moods. And then the second topic is about British, Mus- British, British Muslims facing travel chaos to perform uh, the just concluded Hajj. So those are the two topics. You can join us in these discussions by calling us at 0208687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall be back right after this quick break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. 
We find anxiety and turmoil continue to spread and increase in the world. We find so much strife, restlessness and disorder. We find countries engaged in wars. Terrorist groups, political parties, major powers of the world, all consumed by their efforts to maintain or acquire supremacy and leaving no stone unturned in their efforts towards pursuing their objectives. With all these hostilities engulfing the entire world, we also find a grand solution. We find a serene voice, a voice of reasoning and logic, travelling across the world, forewarning that if these actions continue, then most surely the entire planet will succumb to a detrimental end. With the rapid decline of international relationship, the chances of the entire globe once again engaged in war is increasing daily. This time, wars will be fought with such weaponry that will leave widespread devastating effects. If a person is shot by a bullet, then it is sometimes possible for him to survive through medical treatment. But if a nuclear war breaks out, then those who are in the firing line will have no such luck. The weapons available today are so destructive that they could lead to generation after generation of children being born with severe genetic or physical defects. Thus, if the major powers do not act with justice and do not eliminate the frustrations of smaller nations, and do not adopt great and wise policies, then the situation will spiral out of all control. And the destruction that will follow is beyond our comprehension and imagination. Even the majority of the world who does desire peace will also become engulfed by this devastation. This is the dreadful reality. By adopting aggressive policies and utilizing force, the world will be compelled to think of radical solutions, the most radicalized being war. Recently, a very senior Russian military commander issued a serious warning about the potential risk of a nuclear war. It was his view that such a war would not be fought in Asia or elsewhere, but would be fought on Europe's border and that the threat might originate and ignite from Eastern European countries. Though some people will say that this was simply his personal opinion, I myself do not believe his views to be improbable. But in addition, I also believe that if such a war breaks out, then it is highly likely that Asian countries will also become involved. Have these words of the Khalifa not been proven to be true to the letter? The crisis between Russia and Ukraine have brought back memories of the Cold War, with nearly a hundred member states of the United Nations failing to recognize the control of Crimea by the Russian Federation. Is that not a repeat of the past? When the Arab Spring first came to pass, many people in the world considered it to be a great means for the Arab world to come out of the Dark Ages and embrace modern times. The reality was quite the contrary. Is the world going towards this devastation? Hundreds of thousands of innocent lives have been lost, especially in the Middle East. 
How many more will it take for mankind to take note of the Khalifa's message? There's an urgent need to end all kinds of hatred and to lay the foundations of peace. This can only be done by respecting all kinds of sentiments of each other. If this is not done properly, honestly, and with virtue, it will escalate into uncontrollable circumstances. So what is our responsibility? Most surely to listen to and spread the words of the Khalifa and put them into practice. Save the world from the pit of doom that it is so closely standing upon. Writings of the Promised Messiah In a dream, I saw an angel seated on an elevated platform in the guise of a boy. In his hand he was holding a pure loaf of bread which was very bright. He gave it to me and said, This is for you and the dervishes who are with you. I saw this dream at a time when I was not at all known, nor had I put forth any claim, nor was there any group of dervishes with me. But now I have a large jamaat of people who have voluntarily chosen to put their faith above the world and have thus reduced themselves to the position of dervishes. Having migrated from their homes and having separated themselves from their relatives and friends, they have taken up permanent abode near me. I have interpreted the loaf of bread as meaning that God himself will provide for me and for my followers and that we will not be rendered anxious on account of lack of provision. This has been the case over a long number of years. of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show with your host Anyal and Imam Shahzeb. Um, we are coming to um, to almost 7.30, uh, so we will move uh, straight on to the first topic um, of the day, which is about primary school pupils being aided by pets in class to help regulate uh, their moods. Um, so it is known that being with animals is good for well-being and hence a primary school teacher has put this t theory to test by having a dog in the classroom. He uses the pet to help children that may need time 
to actually um, regulate their emotions. So BBC has reported this uh, story where head teacher Karen Towns has introduced the use of dogs at a primary school over the past decade to provide well-being support to help pupils. She uses her own West Highland Terrier Millie available during the school day for children who need time out to regulate their emotions. Uh, the aim um, in that um, uh, is is that every class will have a dog in school because we found that a calming, homely feel to the school has really benefited the education, pupils' engagement in activities and wanting to come to school. Attendance has improved. Behavior has also improved, uh, she told BBC Wales Live. And she also said that this positive outcome has led other schools also introducing therapy dogs within the school environment. And Welsh government spokesman added that schools can arrange for pets to visit their sites. And these pets are trained to handle stressed or noisy environments. Miss Towns said dogs had been particularly beneficial for pupils with additional needs, including one 10-year-old girl with autism who initially refused to come to school because she did not like dogs. However, after reassuring her parents, the dog became her life, she said. It was the only reason she came to school. The Cartmanshire Council has backed the initiative and a cabinet member for education said, as well as Landelio Primary School who have carried out a lot of positive work in this area. With much success, there are other schools in the country that have also introduced or are looking into introducing therapy dogs within the school environment. And, I mean, this all very sounds um, interesting and very new. Um, I mean, I, I can I can hardly, well, I, I struggle to grapple with the um, with the practicality of having an animal um, within the environment of a classroom and seeing how in reality the children would even be able to focus on the education. Um, I mean, it, the idea is certainly new. I, I fully agree. It's uh, yeah, it's it's a novel idea, but I but I can understand the um, the thought behind it. I mean, yeah, you know, dogs and pets. Um, uh, I do have a calming effect, and if uh, if they're docile and if they're friendly, um, one can imagine that um, you know if there is uh, a mischievous child, mm. uh, this could be a good uh, a good distraction. Uh, well, a, a good distraction from from for mischief. <laughs> I mean, uh, I hate to be the skeptic here, but um, right. I, I'm, I, I'm I'm trying to envisage this in this in parts of the world where. People mm. don't have this luxury, right? Of course, um, of having a tamed animal, which you know has all the injection it needs, you know. Sure. Um, but you know, if it works here, then by all means, you know, this is just one school I think mm. in Wales. Um, but yeah, it's it is something which is different. Um, yeah, it's a, it certainly is a different idea, and I and I, I I hear you as well. I mean, I I know where you're coming from. So I yeah. mean, there there are obviously parts of the world where people, you know, schools have problem funding books, mm. uh, you know, let alone um, uh, allowing pets. So this is something that uh, that obviously is uh, is a very noble idea. Let's go straight to our 
first guests for the uh, for the show, Carol Lincoln, who has run charitable organizations for some years and has experienced firsthand how animals-assisted therapy has improved the lives and well-being of people for ladies, especially children. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Daniel. And good morning. Um, good morning. So, Carol... Uh, Tell us something about uh, therapy dogs. Uh, when and how did this begin? You you may have heard a little bit of our uh, discussion. I mean, this is uh, certainly a very novel idea and um, very interesting. Well, it, it, it is a novel idea, but um, actually for, for centuries since time began, um, people have lived and worked with their animals. So it's only really since the advent of the Industrial Revolution where we became more urbanized, that we've actually stopped living and benefiting from the positive impacts on our well-being of, of being with animals. So um, we, we've sort of grown apart from them. But what sort of happened in 1961 was a, 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 a professor who did some studies um, and found that children particularly benefited from working and, and being around animals. And Petzl's Therapy, which is a, a very large organisation set up in 1983, bringing pets of all sorts into the classroom. So it, it has been around, but it's only recently that it's, it's um, you know, it risen exponentially in schools. Um, so we set up Therapy Dog Training UK in 2019, really to set about bringing some regulation and best practice into the arena because anybody could actually buy a, a dog coat on eBay and walk into a school with very little training, no insurance, no understanding of safeguarding. So we felt this was something that, that we needed to um, address. Um, so basically, um, we're two ladies. We are dog trainers. My business partner, Sarah, um, was, was a pioneer really she was one of the first people in the UK certainly in Wales as well where we're based to take a, a reading dog into a school so we know a little bit about what we're doing um, and we just our aim really is to offer every therapy dog guardian um, across the UK access to best practice information and therapy dog training um, so that therapy dogs and their guardians can be confident to deliver a safe compliance service uh, and one of our main um, objectives also is to make sure that the happiness and well-being of therapy dogs um, should be considered as a priority as well because obviously their well-being and their mental health is very important too. And Carol, is there a difference between an assistance dog and a therapy dog and if so, what are the differences? Yes, it's, it's there's, there's, in simple terms, um, an assistance dog has usually been trained for at least 18 months to two years by an organisation for a specific purpose. So that, that would be organisations like hearing dogs, um, guide dogs for the blind, support dogs. Um, and these dogs are usually specifically bred and trained by these organisations to, to give to um, a client with, with a disability, um, but they will always be under the umbrella of that organisation. So 
for example, uh, a diabetic dog who will uh, alert somebody when their blood sugar is, is dropping or a seizure dog who can tell somebody that they've got 40 minutes warning of, of having an epileptic fit, for example, um, will be specifically trained. Uh, and the client never has to buy this animal. So they belong to the umbrella organization, but they're given to a client and they have the same access rights as the client does. Whereas a therapy dog um, is usually a, a companion animal or a pet that the guardian um, trains in a very positive way to visit schools or care homes or hospices um, or even actually helping professionals in their own well-being practices. We, we have quite a lot of dentists actually that, that come to us that want to have a, a therapy dog on site. So they're trained fully and looked after by their guardians. Um, so they are pets and they're taken into a a therapy setting and they don't have access rights that's the, the 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 big difference and can any animal be a therapy pet um and if so how are they sort of chosen well um i would say that any ma- animal can be a therapy pet but what's important the most important thing of all is that um they have the the right temperament so we actually offer um, and most therapy pet organisations do, we offer specific temperament assessments, as they're called. So this is not so much a test, but just to make sure that the animal um, has the right temperament and is suitable to go into a therapy setting, and that they'll be very happy and enjoy doing so, um, because dogs are very, very tolerant of what humans ask them to do. And you might find that actually they don't enjoy going into a a noisy school, which is a very different environment from their home setting, but they will put up with it. But of course, if a dog is put under this kind of stress, you know, it's it's possible that they might be defensive at some point. So it's very important, not only for the welfare of the animal, but for the safety of, of potentially vulnerable children that a dog is happy. When it comes to training, all dogs can can be trained. It's normally the owner that actually (laughs) needs to be trained uh, to communicate with their dog. So the training is simple, but the temperament assessment is the important thing. Right. So what activities uh, do therapy pets usually get involved in when working with children? Yeah, well, they, 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 they... it's simple stuff. It's simple stuff that really, really works. And we 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 um, set up a, a, a volunteer organisation for a, na- a national uh, pet food company. So we we know a lot about this. And we had um, eighty participating schools. And what we generally found was it was the simple things that really made a difference. So um, a lot of the the nurturing units and the SEN units or even pupil referral units use, use therapy dogs. And what we find is that just actually the, the benefit of walking a dog outside in the fresh air can um, reduce, uh, you know, the situations where children are getting very frustrated and stressed. So that's a classic one. Just hanging out and being with the dog, just enjoying the comfort and joy that they bring. 
uh, grooming and stroking can be very good for children that have autism. But what we found was actually reading to a dog made a massive difference to children's confidence around learning uh, and their desire to want to learn. Uh, And it brought a huge amount of confidence and and actually increased reading scores as well. Um, So we we did a few things. So sometimes we might um, encourage a child to do a little bit of training with a dog. And and children that are looked after children really love the responsibility of of caring for another sentient being. Because for once in their life, they're responsible for for an animal whereas the focus is usually always on them so there's just the simple things are the things that generally work right and have you what sort of results have you achieved uh, um, in terms of uh, children interacting with uh, with pets have uh, have you done any study in terms of their academic results or, or anything like that yes well we, we work, um, we, we have worked and still work very closely with uh, Dr. Helen Lewis at uh, Swansea University and they were kind enough to um, extend a, an impact study mm-hmm. for um, the, the therapy dog program that we uh, set up for Burns Pet Nutrition. Um, and what we found was the first thing that the teachers reported was that the children's well-being went up considerably and children who were falling behind in their reading or their learning generally um, because because they were seen as special children because they got to go to see the dog suddenly it, their peer group recognized them uh, as you know okay this is a, this is a guy now who's really cool because he gets to go see the dog so this just naturally improved this child's confidence we found that reading scores went up quite mm-hmm. considerably, and there were certainly eight children that we knew of who um, who didn't speak. That they just, you know, they 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 had selective mutism. It's called, so they just rarely spoke. Um, we would find them regularly chatting away to the dog because they, their dogs are very non-judgmental. If you read. To to a dog he's not going to tell you you've made a mistake he's just going to avidly listen and, and enjoy and wag his tail and so the whole thing is is, is beneficial because it's, it reduces stress um, it's very comforting and it's fun at the end of the day mm. you know school isn't sometimes isn't fun but this, mm. this little activity is Sure. That makes any sense to you? Absolutely. I, you know, probably giving um, a lot of children, you know, something to look forward to uh, to their day as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the children in the pupil referral units, and and indeed, um, elderly people living in care homes. What we've really found and have reported regularly is that it gives a, an older person something to get up for for the day, and breaks up, you know, mundane clinical routines. But for children who don't want to go to school, the day that the, the, um, the dog is in the school, they'll always be there on time. And in fact, we've just finished working with a school in, in Cardiff, a pupil referral unit. Um, and we've, we've trained eight therapy dogs for that one school. So almost every member of the teaching staff is now taking a well-trained dog into the school 
primarily to make sure that the children attend um, and they're building a relationship with their dog. So you've um, participated in this program with 80 schools in in yes, Wales. We're, we're not doing that now. We, we've, we've finished doing that because we're concentrating. We, we're two ladies that we decided we'd go into a form of semi-retirement, but we've never been so busy <laughs> in our <laughs> lives. Um, but we wanted to concentrate on the training because we're very, very concerned about the lack of regulation and training sure. around therapy dogs. So we've set about to do something about it. But obviously we're still working very closely with schools um, because there's, that the schools themselves are starting to realise that they want to enter into best practice um, and good standards, minimum standards. So we're, we're still working very closely with both volunteers and schools themselves, yes. So is there any plan, Carol, to expand this uh, to other nations in the UK? Well, um, we, we, because we've now um, we've put two workshops online um, where this was really during lockdown because we didn't want to, to just stop our work. Mm. So we, we, we spent quite a lot of time um, making a lot of dog training footage and then uh, creating a, a, a wealth of information as online workshops. So we're finding now that we are getting um, a lot of uh, interest from other countries, obviously English-speaking countries, mm. um, and it, it certainly the whole world of therapy dogs is really expanding. So I'm, I'm hoping that we will be carrying on being very busy. Mm, yes. So, so how many dogs uh, uh, would you have trained so far? Would you would you have any number? Oh gosh, I I, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, we've. We've, all I can say is that we've um, probably assessed four times more than we've trained. So I, I would imagine uh, we've certainly had um, in the last year about 1,200 enrolments in our online courses. Oh, that's um, a big number. I know, plus, plus, um, plus obviously the, the, the people that we've been training in a live way. But what we've also done, because there's only really the, the, the two of us, we've we've built up a network of what we call um, the Therapy Dog Training UK trusted trainers. So mm. we've got trainers now across the UK, probably about 20 to 25, um, who will train on our behalf. So we're building up, um, you know, quite a good mechanism to help everybody across the UK. And I... I suppose in a few years we'll probably be doing that, you know, across the world. Hopefully, no more retirement. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sound. No, so. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think. Yeah, you 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 will be retiring anytime soon. So I don't, um, think, I don't think we're ready to retire. <laughs> Our love of animals is too great. Sure. Yeah, and and especially when it's helping. So in terms of that, what? How long is this engagement with dogs for? In in a particular school, I mean, are, are, are the dogs there throughout the day, or is it, uh, is it only you know, you know, are they only allowed in a classroom for a limited amount of time? How does it work? Yeah. Well, if if I mean, we have a lot of schools that um, train their teaching staff, so that that's a very successful uh, event. And and what we always recommend, whether you're a, a member of teaching staff that brings a dog into a school all day is that the well-being of the animal is, is really important. So mm. 
if a dog is in a school, they need to have uh, adequate rest. They need to have their their own place of of peace Mm. where they're not subjected to um, lots of people and lots Mm. of noise. Mm. So when they're actually actively in their their therapy role, we we would recommend um, an, an hour working and that would be 15 minutes with each child so because that's enough for the child to be honest sure. so they'll they'll work for an hour um and if they're visiting obviously you know they've got to get get into the school and then mm. get home again mm. Mm. so they're generally very tired um after that so if a, if a, a school is uh, you know has a school dog as they're called then they would probably work maybe twice a day but that really is the most and, and we would only ever recommend an hour's actual physical working right so one hour uh, per school day uh, and so so then how how would that work so they would be then uh, be given to a particular class in that school because the school obviously will have a number of classes and then uh, yeah, what, how does that what, work what we what what we've done in the past is we we normally have, before we, we allow the dog to actually start in the school, we have a, a number of meetings with, with the, we, we, we meet with the dog and the head first just to see how the dog's getting on walking into this strange environment. Then we meet with the staff, all of the staff and the dog. And generally what happens at that meeting is the staff will all be saying, do you know what, I know the very person that, that this would really, really help. So... By the time we're, we're ready to take the dog into the school, they've identified a number of children a- across classes that, that this would, you know, that, that the therapy dog would really benefit. So what, what they do then is they get together and generally they'll, they'll have goal books um, and, you know, that, so that they can actually see the impact of, of the work with the animal. Um, so it's generally across the classes. Sometimes th- there might be um, mm. a, a little group session that, that might happen where perhaps the dog sits with the children and, and just is. Um, but generally the magic happens on a one-to-one basis for that, mm. that short space of time. And then usually what happens is the child will be with that dog for a term and then the next term a, a new set of children w- will be you know, provided mm. for the dog, working with the dog. So is this something that you've attempted to do with the, with particularly autistic children, as you as you mentioned earlier, or or, or children who are yeah. having particular challenges, or or, um, uh, or is this sort of something which has been open to all sorts of children? It's, it's open to all sorts of children. Um, g- generally, it's... it's uh, teaching staff that, that work with SEN children that we seem to have the most demand okay. from. Right. Um, and, and because a dog can um, really release a, a meltdown in almost immediately, mm. that, that, you know, that, that can, can really assist um, children with autism. But we did some work with um, blind and partially sighted children across the county, actually, not just in one school. And we, we we had five or six children that, that didn't know each other because they all lived in different parts of the county and they would come together once a week and, and read their braille books to our dogs. And mm-hmm. what was wonderful about that was they, they, 
they got to know each other and they realized that, that they weren't the only person, the only young person in the world that, that couldn't see. So it was a, a fantastic little collaboration, that one. So, you know, it can help uh, children with, with all sorts of learning challenges, but also disability as well. So it's, 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 a, it's a great therapy across the board. Awesome. Carol, uh, a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, very enlightening as well. Thank you very much. It's a very noble Thanks. idea and, and all the very best uh, to you with um, uh, with your retirement plans, if any, uh, if any <laughs> are left, that is. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Daniel. Bye-bye now. <laughs> Bye-bye. Have a great day. So that Bye. was um, Carol Lincoln, who has run charitable organizations for some years and experienced firsthand how animal-assisted therapy has improved the lives and well-being of people of all ages, especially children with special educational needs. Uh, and she was sharing with us her experience uh, both in that and and the training work that she's um, currently doing, right? Um, uh, we uh, we're now coming um, uh, up to uh, or close to the uh, eight o'clock news break. So we will now go on a break, and when we come back after the news, we shall talk about the um, uh, you know how how animals are uh, are viewed in Islam and. Um, and um, uh, look at it from uh, look at the story from from an Islamic perspective. So please do uh, stay tuned for that um, right after uh, these messages and the news break. Allah, Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Al-Quddus is the Holy One, one who is free from all flaws, a blessed being in whom all blessings are amassed. Sanctification of such a being is to declare him pure and flawless. Al-Quddus is the composite of all purity, not merely free from flaws, but also comprising of all excellences which are known and unknown to human perception. Allah is Quddus and His nearness cannot be availed unless one is pure. There are pure people who extol Allah's holiness much more than the angels do and they also spread it in the world. Among them, of course, the most excellent is the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the human adaptation and indeed beneficence of Quddus was at its most and best in the being of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He admonished his followers to also seek this beneficence 
and through its blessings remove any bias they may harbor. It is said that when the divine commandment for the forbiddance of alcohol was made public, pots full of alcohol were immediately broken and liquor flowed through the streets of Medina. This revolutionary change was brought about through the Prophet's power of holiness. Famished, stricken with hunger and poverty, it was indeed the Prophet's power of holiness that brought about the blessings in the lives of the companions. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, depicts the transformation that the quality of the Prophet's holiness brought about in Arabia. This Prophet was created from the light of Allah, who spread his fragrance to take Allah's beneficence to others who removed what was false and manifested most luminously in his truth. He guided people who were but dead of soul, made them civilized and took them to the lofty stages of spiritual discernment. Their drunken nights were transformed into nights of worship of God and their drunken mornings were transformed into the morning prayer, tasbih and istighfar, seeking forgiveness of Allah. In the current age, we have witnessed the manifestation of the holiness of the promised Messiah on whom be peace. Today, we stand witness to the true reflection of the Qudus God on earth in the divine system of khilafat e Fortunate are those who recognize it and benefit from its spiritual power. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. What is Dajjal? Prophecies about the appearance of the Dajjal in the latter days are mentioned in many Islamic traditions. Before Islam, some of the other prophets also mentioned Dajjal in their prophecies, and he is therefore known to the followers of these prophets too, but with different names. 
For example, in Christianity, he is known as the Antichrist, and some descriptions about him are mentioned in the Bible. In all these prophecies, the Jael is always described as a very evil and deceitful being, whose main purpose is to spread darkness in the world, to prevent mankind from establishing a spiritual relationship with the creator of the universe. From the Holy Quran, and through the sayings of the Holy Prophet of Islam, وسلم, Muslims have learnt a lot about the Dajjal. This includes his description, the ways by which one can recognise him, and the methods of protecting oneself from Dajjal's deceit and mischief. Muslims are also informed about the means by which this Dajjal was to be defeated, where it was clearly indicated that Dajjal will be destroyed at the hands of the promised Messiah of the latter days. However, like all other prophecies, this information must be taken metaphorically and should not be expected to be fulfilled literally. Some people think that Dajjal is an individual person or a physical being, but it is understood from the sayings of the Holy Prophet that Dajjal is not a person but rather an assembly that will be the cause of creating corruption in the world. The Arabic word Dajjal is derived from the root Dal Jim Lam, which means to cover or to conceal. From this, it is understood that Dajjal is the one who falsely appears to be truthful and honest while hiding the true disposition of wickedness and mischief. The word Dajjal implies two connotations. First, it signifies a group which supports falsehood and works with cunning and deceit. Second, it is a name that indicates Satan, who is the father of all falsehood and corruption. As Dajjal spreads evil and causes spiritual destruction in the world, he will obviously attack Islam and attempt to ruin its true teachings. But since the Islamic teachings are perfect and final teachings from God, so it was God's promise that he will always protect these teachings. Hence, as prophesied by the Holy Prophet ﷺ, God sent the Prince Messiah of the latter days to destroy Dajjal and demolish all Dajjal constructions. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. There is an account narrated about Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani, may Allah have mercy on him, that when he set out away from home for the purpose of his education, his noble mother sewed his share of 80 coins into the underarm of his shirt and advised him, Son, do not lie. When Syed Abdul Qadir departed, on the first day of his journey, he passed through a jungle that was inhabited by a large band of thieves and robbers. A party of robbers confronted and apprehended him. The robbers asked, What have you got in your possession? Syed Abdul Qadir thought to himself that he was being tested in the first stage of his journey. He reflected over his mother's advice and said, I have 80 coins which my noble mother has sewn into the underarm of my shirt. The robbers were extremely surprised on hearing this and said, What is this dervish saying? We have never seen such a righteous man. They took him and putting him before their chief related the entire story. When the chief questioned him, Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani gave the same response. Finally, when his shirt was torn at the place that he had described, 
it turned out that there were indeed 80 coins sewn into his shirt. All the robbers were astonished, and the chief asked why Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani had told them the truth. At this, Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani mentioned the advice that his mother had given him before he departed. He said, I have set out as a student of religion. If I had told a lie at the very first stage of my journey, what could I expect to attain? And so, I chose to stand by the truth. When Syed Abdul Qadir had said these words, the chief burst into tears, fell at his feet, and repented for his sins. It is said that this chief was the first follower of Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani. In short, truth is a thing that delivers a person in even the most trying and difficult of times. Saudi is true when he says, Never have I seen go astray the one who treads the right path. Therefore, the more a person adopts the truth and develops a love for the truth, the deeper a love and understanding they develop for the word of God and also for his prophets, because they are an example and source for all those who are truthful. This principle is also prevalent in the following instruction. Be with the truthful. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 18th of July, 2022. And this morning we're talking about the healthy effects pets can have um, on children in school. So, uh, pets have evolved, have evolved to become acutely attuned to humans and our behavior and emotions by interpreting our tone of voice, body language, and gestures. Pets can help reduce stress, anxiety, and even depression. Scientists have observed that interacting with animals increase, increases levels of hormone oxytocin. Oxytocin slows a person's heart rate and breathing, reduces blood pressure, and inhibits the production of stress hormones, making a person's mood happier. Thus, a pet can add real joy and unconditional love to your life. Studies have found that animals can reduce loneliness, increase feelings of social support, and boost your mood. They encourage exercise and playfulness. Pets even improve your cardiovascular health as interacting with animals has been shown to decrease the level of cortisol, which is a stress-related hormone. <clears throat> Caring for an animal can help children grow up uh, to be more secure and active. Pets also provide valuable companionship for older adults. Studies have shown that playing with a dog, cat, or other pet can elevate levels of serotonin and dopamine with calm and um, relaxation. 
pet owners have lower triglyceride and cholesterol levels indicators uh, both indicators of heart disease than those without pets heart attack patients with pets survive longer than those without pet owners over um, age 65 make 30% fewer visits to their doctors than those without pets these therapeutic effects from pets fulfill the basic need humans um basic need for need for human um for touch even hardened criminals in person show long term changes in their behavior after interacting with pets many of them experiencing mutual affection for the first time this is because stroking hugging or even touching a loving animal can rapidly calm and soothe you when you're stressed or anxious uh, pets provide many health benefits to human beings so uh likewise they should be treated with care and respect as well it is almost never acceptable to exploit or use animals in a way that is not in the best interest of the animals concerned as animals have the right to be treated gently with care and affection it is wrong for humans to disregard the consequences of the uh, their actions uh towards animals um and uh, and i think that uh, is a nice segue for us to um move on to the uh, to talk about what um, uh, you know how islam uh, how important um, in islam two things so two questions i i would have for you imam shahzeb is mm. firstly would be uh, you know uh, about the treatment of pets and animals in islam how um, you know um, that is um, how important that is and what sort of um, importance that's given in islam and secondly then we're talking about you know essentially about education educating children we're talking about how important um uh, it is to provide any resources available including pets mm. to help um education so how important uh, you know that aspect uh, is uh, that of education in islam both for men and women 100% um i think islam was a pioneer in both attributing rights to mankind and animals and there's this narration a uh, hadith a saying of the holy prophet of Islam the peace of Allah be upon him and when it's stated that as the buhara may Allah be pleased and relate that the holy prophet of Islam the peace of Allah be upon him also used to relate the story of a woman who found a dog suffering from thirst near a deep well and so she took off her shoe and lowered it into the well and drew up some water and she gave the water to the thirsty dog to drink and this good deed earned her god's forgiveness for all of her previous sins and the holy prophet in the peace and blessing of allah be upon him was asked a messenger of allah are we rewarded for kindness to animals also and he answered he answered there is a reward for kindness to every living thing and allah appreciated her action and forgave her sins and admitted her to paradise and so you know what we find really is that both from the practical example of the holy prophet islam we find that you know um cruelty of all kinds you know whether to humans or to animals and to any living thing um was simply admonished and you know what's against the teaching and the way that the holy prophet may the peace of allah allah lived his life and the second part of your question was about you know education um because the segment we were talking about is how dogs are facilitating um in helping children uh, or some of them special needs 
and others in trying to focus within the classroom. And Islam has always been a a champion for education, both for males, uh, for boys, and for females and for girls. So it's very much so important, um, the whole aspect of education within the core principles of Islam, you know, where we find various narrations of the Holy Prophet of Islam saying that even if we one needs to go all the way to China to attain, you know, education, knowledge, one should do so and not be and not have any reservations. Um, you know, he stated that education is an incumbent, mandatory upon both male and female. And you know, various um, scholars have passed in the golden ages of Islam, where we find, you know, pioneers of all sorts. You know, both in um, mathematics and physics. You know, in all sorts of um, academic li- um, avenues, which only reinstates the belief of pursuing uh, educational excellency, and you know these. Um, so two elements both of looking after animals and education may seem you know miles apart but you know from our discussion this morning and from our guest caller Carol who you know, has um, excelled in this avenue of bringing these two um, things together have shown that well from Hurtley's or anything that you know there is success for um, animals to be within the realms of a classroom and therefore allowing children to concentrate and you know the end goal really is for children to achieve you know uh, and excel in their educational endeavors and that's what um, has brought about the conversation that we are having today so where Islam stands um, you know on both the uh, looking after the welfare of animals on on that sort of um, stance, Islam's uh, response has always been to make sure that no living thing is abused or harmed in any sort of fashion. You know, even to the extent of trees being cut during warfare. And that's how meticulous Islam is in terms of looking after the living things around us, and in terms of education. You know, it's well documented. It's well reported upon it's within the scriptures of Islam that we find that it's a crucial part of being a Muslim to attain um, knowledge, education and not only to attain it but to excel within the realms of education Right, thank you very very much uh, for that uh, Imam Shahzeb Um, and with that let's take a a quick break and um, when we come back we will start discussing our second topic which is about the problems um, uh, British Muslims uh, had faced during the uh, Hajj season which has recently concluded um, and uh, the travel chaos that there was around that Hajj season so please do stay tuned you can also participate in our discussion by calling us at 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK we will be back back right after this break
Ashadu an la ilaha illallah Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet, وسلم, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was a true man of peace. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome back to the second segment here at the Voice of Islam, which will just be starting off now. And the second segment is about the British Muslims who have faced tribal chaos in trying to perform holy pilgrimage of Hajj. And with the um, influx of the amounts of people that have tried to travel, not only to um, you know, Saudi Arabia for the Hajj, but in general there's been a great amount of disruption, um, especially on some British Airways flights where we've heard you know, there's been a lack of um, um, staff there and at the airports, you know, in particular the baggage handlers, there hasn't been enough staff in general really um, various people have unfortunately faced a great amount of misery and delay um, and such is the case with those trying to or to some extent trying to perform the pilgrimage of Hajj and Saudi Arabia earlier in June introduced a portal named the Mutafif uh, and many British Hajj travellers have been hit by the uncertainties and anxiety and many that have paid have not received any confirmations 
and are naturally you know, starting to worry about the process. The new portal has cut off UK-based tour operators that used to help around 25,000 or so British Muslims every year. And with the new portal, the cutoff is 3,500 British Muslims. And so the new system it sort of acts as a one-stop shop for pilgrims to book their visas and accommodation with a selection of packages. Um, Saadi Chowdhury writes in Sky News and expressing her fear of Muslim families losing thousands of pounds due to the new portal for Hajj, which has been um, imposed by the Saudi government. And she said it's a new portal called Mudwafif, which enables one to book for Hajj or, or rather apply to do Hajj. And due to the quota system, it's like a lottery system. So one puts in cash but may not get the chance to do Hajj. This is how she puts it. And you know, under some circumstances, it's acceptable to. Um, this has been ex- somewhat exploited. Um, and all in all, the system itself has brought about a great amount of criticism. And she goes and says that those who have applied to go to Hajj to the roots until this new system had paid up in advance. And the new system was sprung on the prospective traveller to Hajj just a few months ago, causing those travellers to seek a refund from the tour companies who are now uh, severely restricted. And those seeking re- refunds will suffer some financial loss through the exchange rate system. Now, some flights have also changed with less than 24 hours' notice, and hotel choices downgraded without notice, and in some cases, people have been turned away from the airport. People are running away, calling their banks, reading small print, and really... You know, this is through no fault of ours, said Farouk. And he's reported to have said that we've paid, and we've been through the process, we've done everything that was asked of us. I even had my PCR done in case somebody pulls a flight out of a hat tomorrow and I'm ready to go. And the, pers- the, the sort of purpose of this new system um, is reported to be prevention of fraud and more accessible. Suffice to say that this year the Hajj was on the new system and the quota for UK travellers to Hajj this year was three and a half thousand. The Council for British Hajjis say 90% of British pilgrims hoping to form Hajj this year were impacted by this new system. So the questions arise as to is it fair to have a limit on those who want to perform the pilgrimage of Hajj? Well normally some two million visit Hajj each year and this year the numbers were limited to 1 million. The Saudi government decided to limit the numbers due to the ongoing pandemic, but using the new system to book online proved very difficult for some. Al Jazeera stated that part of the issue is that every Muslim going to Hajj has unique needs, and the online online system sometimes may not be able to accommodate that. That is why the bespoke service that Hajj tour operators offer has become so important. Parliamentary and Qureshi said the switch to Mudawwif had been done too rashly and will have a permanent effect on the Hajj sector in the UK. They've been destroyed in the UK alone. Around 200 or more good operators have had their livelihoods destroyed. Al Jazeera further stated that the quoted and rather quoted the Saudi Ministry for Hajj to say that increasing the numbers from COVID. Two years, the Kingdom's Ministry of Hajj and Umrah said the annual Muslim 
pilgrim to Mecca, Islam's holiest site, would only be allowed for people who have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19 and are under the age of 65. And the um, the ministry also stated it's of supreme importance to the government of the custodian of the two holy mosques to preserve the safety and security of Hajj pilgrims as well as visitors to the Prophet's mosque while ensuring that the maximum number of Muslims worldwide can perform Hajj and visit the Prophet's mosque in a safe and spiritual atmosphere. And before the virus emerged, some 2.5 million people went to Hajj. And as we learned earlier, that number has been slashed uh, into half. So what will happen to those um, tour operators, really, who are trying to function and have had their livelihoods cut? Right. Right. So before we sort of go into that discussion, um, let's um, uh, uh, sort of take a step back and uh, and look at the importance of Hajj and oh, yes. why Hajj is important and why is it done and um, who is exempt. Um, and let's let's listen into um, uh, this um, uh, this um, pre-record that we have uh, uh, this audio clip about Islamic jurisprudence around Hajj. On today's show, we're going to be looking at the fifth pillar of Islam, the concept of the Hajj, the spiritual pilgrimage that Muslims intend to and endeavor to partake in once, at least once, in their lifetime. Let's take a little bit of a closer look into this topic. In different religions of the world, pilgrimage to holy sites and places form an integral part of tradition. Visiting a sacred place of historic and religious significance often has a profound effect on the pilgrim and fulfills an injunction of the faith. The same principle can also be found in the religion of Islam. The beautiful pilgrimage of Hajj to the Kaaba in Mecca is one of the fundamental pillars of Islam and holds special importance in the life of a Muslim. Allah the Almighty describes the Hajj in many places of the Holy Quran. These descriptions, furnished with the blessed example of the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, form the understanding of this sacred pilgrimage, enabling Muslims globally to partake in this spiritual exercise and fulfilling this fundamental pillar of Islam purely for the sake of God. Muslims believe that all commandments and injunctions of God contain a wisdom and tangible betterment for the people. In similar manner, one is also required to ensure that certain requirements are met before embarking on this journey, with Hajj only being compulsory if one's health, safety and financial situation allow for it. The Hajj is a universal gathering, symbolizing both the unity of Allah and the unity of mankind. During these days of the month of Dhul-Hijjah, there are no social boundaries or racial differences. Rather, all are gathered for the same purpose of worshipping God, which also is the purpose of life. In this episode, we will explore the philosophy behind the Hajj, its different rituals and their underlying meanings, and look deeper into the what's, why's and how's of this once-in-a-lifetime experience. 
So it's interesting to see how spiritual pilgrimages, of course, not just limited to Islam, but how they are something which is so pivotal in a spiritual individual's life. And it's amazing to see how so many people from all over the globe uh, convene together to enjoy this spiritual, um, the, the spiritual purpose and to answer this spiritual calling. Shazad Sab, on that note, I mean, we understand and we've talked about to an extent before the way in which every single commandment of God has a philosophy and a, a betterment for the individual that practices it. What is the philosophy and the importance of the concept of Hajj in Islam? Indeed, um, the, the Hajj is a pillar of Islam and like with all the pillars of Islam contains great deep philosophy and wisdom. As we discussed in previous programs, we refer uh, exploring the subject of Salat. Mm. We mentioned that Salat is a form of worship in which the soul is instilled with the emotions of fervency and humility and the fear of Allah the Almighty. And the physical postures of Salat reflect that as well. Yes. The way we stand, the way we prostrate, we bow before Allah the Almighty. Hajj is another form of worship and it's a very sacred and blessed institution. And all the various rituals and the rites within Hajj we find are very symbolic of deep love and of very strong emotions of affection and devotion. So for instance, we see that the, the pilgrim will uh, wear two plain clothes and will circuit around the, the Kaaba. He then runs between Safa and Marwa. He kisses the black stone. All the various aspects of Hajj we find are symbolic and reflect deep love for Allah the Almighty. So while in prayers, we reflect the emotions of fervency and humility. Hajj, which is prescribed, is obligatory upon all Muslims to perform at least once in their lifetime, if they have the provisions of course, is a form of worship which allows and reflects the emotions of love and deep affection. So these overall, just in brief, are the two concepts that we have of worship, which is Salat and Hajj. It is also beautiful to note, as Shah also alluded to, the unity created in this convention when Muslims all around the world gather. And now when we have so many denominations and sects within Islam, mm. but this one symbol stands very high in symbolizing just that in this, on this occasion, there are no differences. We are all worshipping God in the same way. It's, it's actually very beautiful. I mean, a, um, a, a scholar once mentioned the way that it's through the bringing together of the people around the world and at first glance they are all focusing in towards the Kaaba and they said that if we were actually to lift the Kaaba metaphorically speaking of course we would actually realize that humans are actually looking towards one another as well therefore it almost symbolizes the bringing together of the Hakuk al-Ibad through the purpose of Hakukullah. So the rights of the creation through and recognized through the rights of God Almighty Himself. So it's a, it's a beautiful way of bringing that concept of unity together in many different forms. Gashasab, I mean, what, what conditions must one meet in order to perform the Hajj? Of course, we understand that this is, a, this is a situation which one will want to undergo, but there are certain situations in which, in which one finds himself unable to go. What, what are the conditions that you need to fulfill? Yes, if you look at the articles of Islam, the five pillars, there are conditions for fasting, there are conditions for zakat even, and similar for hajj, which is prescribed on all Muslims, mm. but still there are conditions which have to be met uh, in order for you to be able of doing hajj. In the Holy Quran, God Almighty st states that 
Manistata ilayhi sabila That whoever finds passage may go and perform hajj. Now there are certain uh, things which happen in man's life which means that he cannot perform this journey. For instance, if he is ill or physically unable to perform this very strenuous activity or even if he doesn't have the financial means of doing it, then he is uh, excluded from this obligation, exempted from it. And then of course there is the, the safety the safe passage to Hajj. For sometimes there is a disease on the way or there is social unrest and disorder mm. which stops man from performing Hajj. So all these conditions are included in the verse that Manistata, that whoever has the means of going to Hajj, he should do so. I see. Again, it comes back to a very common concept which we've talked about before about God wishing ease upon the believers and not hardship. And it's, it's beautiful to note how God has already laid down these exemptions so that a Muslim does not think that they are forced to go despite not having the means or the security of doing so. On that note, Gosh Sab, many people ask the question in regards to as to why the Promised Messiah did not do Hajj. What would you yes. say to this? Now the purpose of the advent of the Promised Messiah was to reinstate the true teachings of Islam and he also taught us the true spirit of Islam. Now these conditions which I mentioned, which are included in the verse, that you are not supposed to perform Hajj if certain uh, hindrances are there. Yes. The Prophet had certain hindrances in his way, which, which actually exempted him from this duty. For instance, the safe passage, because at that time there was a hostility and even edicts of Kufr was uh, against him. And also his physical uh, illness, uh, because of ailments, because the Holy Prophet ﷺ prophesied that the, coming, the Messiah would have certain illnesses mm. which, would, uh, which would actually prevent him from performing these obligations, uh, we can say afterwards. But we should remember that even the Holy Prophet ﷺ, who stayed and resided in Medina for, for um, uh, years, 13 years, he only performed Hajj once and that was after he conquered Mecca. Before that there was no safety of passage. And it is the practice of the Prophets of Allah Almighty that they avoid disorder and they avoid creating harm, harmful situations for their followers and for themselves. Indeed, indeed. So these conditions were not met, so the Prophet Islam as such was not obligated to perform Hajj. I see. Shazad Sahib, we've talked a little bit about those individuals who are exempt from having to go on the pilgrimage. And of course, hmm. when an individual is exempt from this, it's not as if it's a, a burden which has been relieved. It's something which everyone and every Muslim desires and has an arduous desire to fulfill this, knowing that it's a pillar of Islam is one thing, but also that spiritual reformation that is supposed to come about as a result of it is another thing entirely. Hmm. But for those individuals that do partake in, the, uh, in, in this spiritual pr um, practice of Hajj or this spir spiritual pilgrimage, uh, what are the various rites and the arkan of Hajj that they have to fulfill whilst partaking in this pilgrimage? Sure. So, Mansur Sab, the Hajj begins on the 8th of Zulhijjah. Um, prior to the 8th of Zulhijjah, the pilgrims will arrive in Mecca mm -hmm. and they will enter into the state of Ihram, which we will, inshallah, speak about later on in the program as well yes, in more detail. Yes. But they enter into the state of Iram from the various Miqats. These are those particular places that the Holy Prophet ﷺ himself had designated. Depending on people where they are coming from around the world, there are various places from which they will enter the state of Iram and enter Makkah. Once they are in Makkah on the 8th of Zulhijjah, 
They will perform seven circuits of the Kaaba. The, they will also perform seven circuits of Safa Marwa, read two Nuafil. And then they will head towards Mina. At Mina, then they offer their prayers. They spend the whole day there. And until the, on the ninth of Zulhijjah, the next day, they will offer the Fajr prayer at Mina and then make their way to Arafat. And at Arafat, they spend the whole day there. Uh, they read their Zohar and Nasr prayer there. And then bef oh, late in the day, uh, before sunset, they will leave uh, Arafat and make their way to Muzdalfa. And there they will read the Maghrib and Isha prayer combined very late in the, day, in the night. They will spend the night there and on the 10th of Zulhijjah they will read the, offer the Fajr prayer and then make their way to Mashal Haram. And the 10th of Zulhijjah is also known as the Eid al-Adha and Muslims all around the world, as we know, will uh, commemorate that day, celebrate that day as Eid al-Adha. But for the pilgrim, uh, those who are performing the pilgrimage, they will then from Mashal Haram, they will go to Mina and it is at Mina that they then throw the stones at uh, the, the first stone that they throw the, um, the, the small stones at yes, yes. is the uh, Jamarat al-Akbar. Mm -hmm. And this sort of symbolizes the temptation of Satan, which uh, came at the time of Hazrat Ibrahim salam, when he was making the great sacrifice. So it's a symbolic uh, gesture that is done. And thereafter, the pilgrim will sacrifice an animal. Uh, they will cut their hair. Mm. Um, and also they will then make their way to Mecca and perform the seven circuits. And on the 11th and the 12th, this ritual is then repeated. Mm. And then it's an option that if the pilgrim wants to stay on the 13th and do the same, he can do so. But if they want to, they can leave on the 12th. But one of the compulsory things they have to do is the tawaf ifaza. That is the, the, the tawaf that they do, the seven circuits of the Kaaba which is the last thing that they do. That's compulsory, which is done, which can be either done on the 12th or the pilgrimage can then do it on the 13th. So that's just a very, very brief overview of, uh, of, of the, the Hajj from the 8th till the 12th or the 13th. But of course, there is a lot more detail that can be explained. But for this program, I think this is sufficient. Right. So, so that was um, uh, some context as to... Um, what how uh, Hajj is actually performed. Let's now look at what was the method of performing Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca before Islam, and what changes were actually made by its advent. Let's listen in. Would Hazur kindly explain what was the method of performing Hajj before Islam, and what changes were made by the Holy Prophet yes. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? after Allah Ta'ala made Hajj obligatory for Muslims? Quite. That's a good question. The fact is that there have been many um, eras in which the style and customs and rites of Hajj have been changing, influenced by the um, various people who occupied uh, the position of authority in Mecca at that time. When at the, it started, uh, as far as I investigated, Hajj is known to have started long, long ago. It's not only a tradition uh, in, um, inherited from, uh, uh, I mean, tradition left by uh, Hazrat Ibrahim or his son Hazrat Ismail, but there are 
some references from which we can infer that uh, the tradition of Hajj went much, much further, much uh, more, much earlier, yes, further back in time. For instance, uh, the vision of Hazrat Ibn Arabi tells us that uh, there he once in a in a vision he saw some people performing Hajj who did not appear to be uh, people like uh, other human beings. There was some difference, you know, in their style and habits. And while during while the introduction was being, um, I mean, they were being introduced to each other. Uh, he mentioned Hazrat Adam, Adam, that, uh, let me see, now let me uh, recollect the whole thing. It was the alien, to him he was an alien, who uh, introduced himself and uh, Hazrat, uh, who was, who mentioned Adam first, you remember that? Uh, I think it was Hazrat Ibn Arabi who says that I mentioned Hazrat Adam wasalam, and uh, he said, which Adam you are talking about? He said, which Adam? We know only the Adam who happened to be so many thousand years ago. He said, no, we are the children of an Adam who lived here about 40,000 40, years before. And uh, we used to perform Hajj like you do, and we used to make the circuits. So this is a reference which is uh, not enough to prove a point, but it's an oblique reference to what might have happened. <coughs> Had it been just that, it would not have uh, gained any any serious importance. But Hazrat Ibn Arabi, while quoting this vision of his, also points out that this vision of mine reminded me of a tradition of Hazrat Muhammad Mustafa وسلم, which said that there were scores of Adams, various ages, at various ages. And uh, the beginning of, of those Adams we don't know, but there were many, many before, even before 40,000 years. So he also mentioned the time what was the time mentioned by Hazrat Ibn Arabi in this? Of other, other referring to that tradition of Ahadu Sallallahu I think... No, 40,000 is the one he mentioned himself about him, about the, his own encounter with those people. He mentioned the word 40,000, figure 40,000. But that reminded him of a tradition of Ahadu Sallallahu in which it was said that many items have come before. And the time was uh, of a larger scale, much larger scale than this. Yes. 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 But do you remember that tradition? Yes. But still you are leading from one place to another, but you are not telling me. Yes. <laughs> All right. Just study from that way. Yes. <laughs> anyway, there is another um, way of looking at it. 
that uh, the holy quran i mean that is the most important authority on any subject the holy quran refers to the building or rebuilding of khana kaaba by hazrat ibrahim alaihi salatu wassalam the holy quran tells us inna awwala baitin wuzi'a lin-nasi lallazi bi bakkata mubarakam wa hudam the very first house that's built for the sake of mankind for the purpose of worship of allah that is mubarakan hudal huda hudan lil alamin now that shows that this was the very first house and we know positively that hazrat ibrahim alaihi salatu wasalam was not the uh, founder of this house at all because it is mentioned that uh, he was raising uh, the obliterated it from the is raised from the obliterated foundations yes so that shows that the house uh, belonged to a much earlier age now if it was built at a much earlier age there should have been some traditions and rites belonging to this house and that means that hajj dates back to much 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 earlier period and also once i found out about the the hajj the custom of hajj Uh, from other sources i studied from the other sources and encyclopedia in particular and it told us that this is a custom which is a universal custom and uh, it is found everywhere in the world in every people and they have their own special mekkas localized places of hajj so this is this tradition is a worldwide universal tradition which has been inherited by the children of adam from long long ages before so that seems to be one of the fundamentals of religion otherwise all these various people shouldn't have inherited and if it was so it was a fundamental feature of religion then for the awwala bait that that had to be there so all these pointers uh, pre- present a forceful argument put together if not individually in favor of our believing that uh, hajj was performed at much earlier times than we think and uh, khana kaaba whenever it was built for the first time uh, it was also used for the purpose of bait hajj baitullah later on now the second part of your question later on when or even previously perhaps uh, whenever it was khana kaaba was invaded by infidels and captured by infidels or let's say when the people became corrupted and the concept of unity of god gave way to the concept of many gods ultimately the same place became the place of idol worship and this is exactly how hazrat sallallahu alaihi wasallam found it and at that time the traditions of hajj were also influenced by the people's religion the result was that although they made the circuits all right but they also worshiped their their uh, various idols and also practiced some very uh, profane customs and uh, those who had absolutely 
I mean, no place in, in God, for worship of God. For instance, people, the Arabs, before Ahadullah used to make circuits completely naked. And uh, this was one of the customs which uh, was uh, put out by Ahadullah forever. And he said that this is not going to be practiced again. And uh, he chose Hazrat Ali to, to announce this to the Meccans that from now on you will never be permitted to perform Hajj with your old customs. This is why Hazrat Imam Abu Hanifa and many other Muslim scholars of great worth have in, um, inferred that what Hazrat Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam understood from the verse prohibiting the infidels to go near Mecca or near Baitullah uh, was not a physical approach but it was the religious approach that was forbidden. And this is why the Hazrat Imam Hanifa has openly said, I mean, in so many, said it in so many words and some other scholars have also gone very close to this and there was a debate between the old scholars. Some understood that verse to mean that uh, infidels were physically prevented from approaching Baitullah. And uh, this is why the present regime also, which is a Wahhabi regime, and is very strict in uh, following the word and letter, do not permit uh, non-Muslims to go to Mecca, even if they are not infidels, even if they are not uh, uh, idolaters, they are prevented. For that we have no authority. In fact, what happened was, as Hazrat uh, Imam Abu Hanifa and many other scholars have inferred, that la, uh, la yakrabu, la, la, eh? uh, do you remember? Uh, anyway, but I'll, I'll explain. I mean, I don't remember the verse exactly. But it is said that after this year, this was the verse was revealed uh, after Hunan. And uh, <coughs> when Ahadullah had returned to Medina, so it was said that after this year, the infidels will sh shall not be permitted to go near Khana Kaaba. And they will never have access or possession of these places. This is the verse which I am referring to. And this verse has been variously interpreted by various people. Some infirm, infer that there is a total prohibition of physical approach. And uh, they strictly follow this. And there are others who believe that this is not correct because it contradicts some other explanations of Ahadrat himself. So it has to be a spiritual approach which is prohibited. And uh, the order which was given by Ahadrat explains this. They were forbidden from uh, making circuits with the old customs. The same customs were forbidden to be revived. 
the result was that they were forbidden to go naked they were forbidden to chant slogans or uh, such uh, you know religious expressions as would uh, remind one of idolatry so that was the real prevention this is why once uh, in this uh, majlis in answer to a question i maintained the same position and i still maintain the same position despite the fact that some mv scholars pointed out that uh, the verse is very clear on this point that they should not be permitted to go uh, near khana kaaba physically but it's not so it's not so clear as far as that goes on the contrary this the same verse was quoted against physical approach to hazrat sallallahu alaihi wasallam by some of his companions and he refuted this and said this is the incorrect meaning you have understood so after that what is left some uh, non muslims uh, entered masjid nabwi which is a very sacred mosque to say the least uh, it should stand Um, if not equal second to khana kaaba second i think to khana kaaba in in importance because khana kaaba was also built for hazrat sallallahu alaihi wasallam ultimately and uh, he performed his his hajj and and, and uh, salat there so after khana kaaba if there was a sacred mosque in degree i mean every mosque is sacred otherwise it was uh, the closest to khana kaaba was hazrat sallallahu alaihi wasallam's mosque he permitted non muslims and also infidels idolaters to approach him in that mosque and when questioned by sahaba the same verse was quoted by sahaba that is companions that isn't it said in the holy quran innamal mushrikuna najisun so aaz sallam said yes it is said but it does not mean physical najis it is the najis of the heart and the najis of the heart does not make the physical being of a place filthy is, is does not soil a, a, a physical physical thing so how how wise and how beautiful this this observation is that when allah says najis that is the najis of the heart and the najis of the mind and that cannot translate itself into a physical reality and touch us physical being so this is why huzur akram sallallahu alaihi wasallam permitted them to enter the mosque but they were not permitted to perform uh, their worship to idols so that is the meaning they should not be permitted to come near that is in essence their customs should not be permitted to have a play in the same uh, sacred place their religious rites should not be permitted it should be kept clean from all concepts of idolatry that is the meaning so aaz sallallahu stopped that as well so that was the fourth head of the amd muslim community hazrat mirza tahir ahmed uh, talking about um, hajj and the the journey uh, uh, to uh, to perform the pil- pilgrimage 
both before Islam and after the advent of Islam. And that brings us uh, to towards the end of our program today. I must thank our producer, uh, Faiza Chima, as well as researchers, uh, Saira Ahmed, Ruksana Saiba, and uh, Vajaya Saiba. Excellent tech support from Tahir Ahmed uh, Saiba, as usual. Um, and of course, my co-host, uh, Imam Shahzeb Adar, who's... Um, uh, who will be driving all the way back to Watford uh, after this. So thank you very much, uh, Imam Atha, for for that as well. Um, Nine o'clock news is next. Please do join us for another edition of The Morning Show tomorrow. <laughs>